This, this, this is KU. KUT. KUT, Austin. Stop. This is KUT. I'm Jennifer Staten. Voting rights, immigration, movement building, economic empowerment, the media's portrayal of race. Those are some of the topics on the table for the Summit on Race in America, starting Monday night at the LBJ Presidential Library on the University of Texas at Austin campus. So is the search for what the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community. Dr. Peniel Joseph will be presenting about that. He's the founding director of the LBJ School's Center for the Study of Race and Democracy and holds the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values at UT Austin. We're really interested in the intersection between race, democracy, um, inequality, voting rights, um, politics, uh, the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration, uh, but also when we think about race and democracy, the American presidency, how does it impact our politics at the local, state, regional, national, and global level? So issues of immigration, um, issues of black, brown, um, white uh, identity. And, and when we think about things like Brexit, when we think about um, Uh, mass shootings and violence, the rise of white supremacy, the election of 2016, all these things we're very, very much interested in. Walter's also interested in civil rights right here in Austin, Texas. We have a civil rights in Burnt Orange project where we are interviewing uh, both precursors and past um, African-American and Latinx and other firsts to integrate UT, but also bringing it to the contemporary context and asking students of all backgrounds about racial climate um, on campus. So basically, when we think about the center, the center is a research center where people are doing, we have graduate fellows and undergraduate fellows who are doing research on really issues of race and democracy locally, um, but with some national implications. Um, Some of that work is going to be posted by, you know, May and this summer in terms of 2019. Um, But we also do public programming. We do conferences. We do symposiums. We've done um, race and democracy and public policy conferences. April 16th, we have a conference on uh, envisioning black freedom, uh, 1619 to 2019, an all-day conference uh, at the LBJ School from 1130 to 4. That really brings um, policy scholars, historians, Um, a a really group of experts who are really looking at the last 400 years when we think about African-American history. And 1619 is important for all of us because that's where the first enslaved Africans arrive in British colonial North America, Jamestown Colony, Virginia in 1619. And these are... um, 20, sometimes we say 19, but it's 20 um, something. We don't know the exact number of enslaved Africans from Angola who were taken from Angola by Portuguese slave traders and then kidnapped by British privateers and brought to mainland um, North America in 1619. And so when we think about racial slavery in what is going to become the United States, 1619 is our starting point, even though the slave trade predates 1619. Is there a topic in American society today or worldwide that doesn't have an intersection with race? Yeah, absolutely. I think that race is at the core of um, American Democrat, our American Democratic project and narrative. And that has to do with the fact that when we think about the United States of America, and really global capitalism, it's built up through 
um, racial slavery. And really, what I like to tell students, there's a supply chain that racial slavery uh, innovates. And that supply chain includes everything from when we think about cotton, uh, when we think about uh, a, a global financial system that is trafficking in cotton that's connected to um, British uh, uh, creditors and American plantation owners and and a, a system of trade that gets set up where uh, enslaved Africans have insurance policies, life insurance policies on them. Um, who, who's going who's going to feed them? Um, what, what are they going to do that's impacting uh, North, South, Midwest, but also globally? So there's really a supply chain. So when we think about uh, American capitalism and American democracy, race is at the center of it, even as I think we've tried to tell ourselves a different story, of course, because sometimes it's a difficult story, but it's really our history. And by, when I say our history, I mean white, black, Latinx, Native American, Asian American. It's our American history. You are going to be a presenter at the Summit on Race in America that's coming up, the LBJ Foundation and many others putting that together. Your particular presentation is called Social Justice and the Search for the Beloved Community. So can you give us a bit of a preview about what you're going to be focusing on in your presentation? I think this idea of the beloved community, which is coming out of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., is more um, pressing and imperative now than even during King's time. I think of King, who I write about extensively. I have a new book coming out on Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X next spring called The Sword and the Shield. And I think King is not just a founding, iconic uh, father of, of the new America that comes out of the 1960s and the heroic period of the civil rights movement. This idea of a beloved community for King was a community that was free of violence, free of war, free of racism, free of injustice. But to get that freedom, we had to earn it. We had to um, have not only conversations, but King led protests and demonstrations, always nonviolently. But these were protests and demonstrations that were transformative. So King wanted a revolution, but he didn't want a revolution that would spill a drop of blood. Right. So this idea of a beloved community and where are we today in the city of Austin, in the state of Texas, in the United States of America, a beloved community that is multiracial, multicultural, multi-class. I'd say now multi-gendered when we think about sexuality and sexual orientation, a beloved community that includes both citizens, but people are undocumented who are still global citizens. Right. And still have rights um, in terms of human rights and God given rights. So I'm interested in discussing this idea, this search for the beloved community in the age of Ferguson, in the age of Trump, in the age of Obama, where we're at today, where we seem more racially divisive than ever in the context of Brexit, in the context of mass shootings in New Zealand and Charlottesville and, and white supremacist rallies. So I think that King's call um, on August 28th, 1963, March on Washington, this idea of now is the time to make real the promise of democracy is really a global call. And if anything, I think Dr. King's message of radical love and radical hope uh, confronting and speaking uh, truth to power, confronting injustice, confronting mass incarceration, confronting the crisis of immigration in this country, confronting LGBTQ um, um, issues and, and, and phobias against all these different communities. 
that's what we're looking for now. So I think the beloved community, when we think about issues of whether it's Black Lives Matter or March for Our Lives or women's marches, this is all connected to what King was talking about. And like I said, I think now more than ever is the time that we have to really not just have a conversation, but enact that beloved community in our, our policies, our curriculum. Um, as a community here in Austin, we like to say we are a progressive community. We need to walk the talk. So that's what I'm going to talk about. Um, so it's both an optimistic talk, but a, a talk that is really um, realistic in terms of confronting the challenges of inequality that are really entrenched and embedded in our society and our institutions that we have to talk about, but we have to have policy um, to transform. It seems like, I'm, I guess I'm thinking back to the 60s that those movements were segmented. There was, sort of, there was civil rights movement, there was women's movement. And you, when you talk about them, I sort of, I'm envisioning kind of arms wide open, you are sort of pulling them all together. And if I'm hearing correctly, sort of that one struggle and movement is all the struggles and movement. Absolutely, we need coalition politics. And I would say in the 1960s, Jennifer, they're, they're, we think of them as segmented, but no, I think that these movements were together and there were coalitions. King got with welfare rights activists. King, right shortly before his death, he met with um, uh, Latinx and, and farm worker activists, right? I mean, he was meeting with poor white anti-poverty activists besides black sharecroppers in Mississippi and Alabama. So we remember these movements as separate. But when we think about anti-war farm workers, women's rights, both black and white feminism, um, anti-poverty movements, uh, civil rights movements, black power, uh, Chicano power. These movements were together. These movements were together uh, to the extent that they were calling for this rainbow revolution, saying that really we, we think about um, black lives matter. We think about uh, saying that that w why are we saying these things? We're saying these things because of the politics of inequality. But in the context of the 1960s and even somebody like Fred Hampton, the Black Panther leader from Chicago, made coalitions with white, Latino, black, <laughs> Native American activists in Chicago, making this argument that we really were in all in this together. How do we enact these changes to get closer to a beloved community? Well, first of all, we have to talk to each other and we have to share our truths with each other and to really find what are the common grounds of those truths. And that's what Dr. King called for. When Dr. King um, um, talks about, you know, uh, justice is what love looks like in public. So when he's talking about the Montgomery bus boycott, 1955-56, the reason why he's saying the buses need to be desegregated is because it's going to have a cascading effect on all these other injustices. So it's really more than just about civil rights and about voting rights. It's about human rights and this human rights movement. So I think in the 21st century, in 2019, we need to talk to each other and find out um, what common ground we all share. Uh, and, and so when you think about that beloved community, that beloved community that King talks about at the March on Washington, he says we have to talk about racial slavery. He says once we talk and have this transformation, the sons and daughters of both those who were enslaved African, African-Americans and the sons and daughters of those who were owners, plantation owners, can sit at a table of, of sisterhood and brotherhood and humanity, right? So these are the hard conversations that you have to have. And I think once you have those conversations and people get together, you can absolutely organize 
for social justice, for um, um, public policy transformation. There's a connection between the policy transformations that people who want an end to mass incarceration and people who want citizenship for, for, for immigrants um, have in common. There's a connection when we think about environmental justice activists. There's a connection when we think about reproductive rights and feminists. It's all connected. There's a connection with people who are thinking about mental health and, and those who are marginalized in different communities. Healthcare. There, these are all connections. Uh, King talked about the, the, the world house. He said that uh, the, the, the United States and the rest of the world were interconnected. And he talks about um, uh, uh, a single garment of destiny, how we all all mutually connected. So this idea of a beloved community is very, very important. But I think sometimes we think that um, King wanted us all to just hug each other and not have these difficult conversations, these courageous conversations. And that's the last thing he wanted. He wanted us to have those conversations. And he said the price for the beloved community wasn't going to be violence, wasn't going to be violence, but the price was having those tough and difficult conversations. And we were going to have to have shared power and shared resources. How do we have those conversations? It seems like Right now, it's just hard to get people together. How do we start those tough conversations? Well, I think the work of the center is dedicated to that. And I think this race summit where we're having high profile, um, both young and civil rights veterans and leaders, uh, folks who are um, connected to grassroots groups, but also iconic civil rights activists. There's going to be some cultural performers there, too. I think that there's a multi-generational conversation that's going to be happening. And I also think we need to create safe spaces for people where people can come in and say the wrong thing in quotes. They can come in and say, hey, I don't have I have a lack of knowledge on this issue, but I want to learn. Right. And they can also say, I don't know the history. I don't know the story. Um, I think this idea of talking about things like white privilege is very, very important. Racial justice is very, very important. But we have to set up a framework so that people can enter this conversation, because when it comes to academics, scholars, activists who've been in the field for decades and decades, this is a long running conversation. And sometimes it's such a um, complicated conversation. People feel like they need to shy away from it. They feel anxious. They feel nervous. Right. And this is not just white people. When we think about politics of uh, white fragility that Robin DiAngelo has talked about, it's it's African-Americans, it's Latinx, it's Native Americans. You really have to learn this story. No one is born knowing the history of oppression. Women don't know the feminist history and know about not just Gloria Steinem, but but um, um, when we think about Susan B. Anthony and, and different suffragists and feminists of the 19th century, black people aren't born knowing about Frederick Douglass. And, you know, you, you, you've got encyclopedic knowledge of the African or African-American experience. So so we all um, have to come in here with humility and we're all looking for um, basically unearned grace uh, in this conversation. And I think that King beautifully, when he thinks about when I think about King and, and this idea of uh, the beloved community, he was aware of all that. He invited everyone, um, including those and especially those he disagreed with to enter this conversation. Certainly there's a common denominator. King wanted us all to recognize each other's humanity. So he, he didn't necessarily have and invite conversations for people who refused to do that on either side of any ideological or racial divides. So as long as we're willing to say we recognize the humanity of somebody who is undocumented, we recognize um, the humanity of a child with special needs, we recognize the humanity of people who are poor, we recognize the humanity of people who are incarcerated, 
right? We recognize the humanity of people who are HIV positive. We recognize all these people's humanity, even if we disagree on how we can uh, build that beloved community, we can have that conversation. Can this work and this change towards a beloved community happen for people who aren't the choir? Because it seems like a summit like this is, you know, everybody who's participating, activists, academics, folks who've been doing the work for a long time and to a certain extent kind of get it. What about the people who don't get it and they're not going to watch the summit online They and these discussions are not part of their daily, weekly, monthly, or yearly life. How do you reach those people? Well, I think everyone should participate in the conversation. And I think everybody comes to the conversation at different inflection points. So for some people in the United States, uh, the rise of Barack Obama was that inflection point. For others, it's going to be Ferguson and Baltimore and when there's racial uprisings. For others, their inflection point is sports. And it's um, not just Colin Ka- Kaepernick, it's LeBron James. And and it's um, uh, basketball and NCAA, March Madness, right? So I'd say that there's always going to be an inflection point. For some, it's very personal. And it's that their, their own son or daughter has an African-American friend or a Latino friend that they've brought home. And that's their inflection point of talking about race. So I think there's always going to be an inflection point and an epiphany. I think what we're doing here is not necessarily just speaking to the choir, because I think in these times, times are so rough right now. Uh, and so racially divisive that um, you need a summit to bring even like-minded people together so that they can have some kind of um, not even just reassurance, but they can have a charge. They can, they can be compelled and have a focus of saying, look, we want to be transformers and we want to be innovators and we want to be disruptors of a status quo that many of us feel is really un-American. A status quo that is un-American because we feel that America at its best is not just a melting pot. It's really a, a nation of immigrants and, and this multiracial, multicultural uh, nation where all dreams are possible and where racial justice is at the core of who we are. Not something that's ancillary. Racial justice, gender justice, this idea of citizenship and freedom and democracy um, that is when we are liberty's surest guardian globally, right? So there is an American dream that you can touch and you can taste. And we've seen parts of it um, um, historically in the 20th century um, and before when we think about the Second World War, when we think about aspects of the civil rights movement and the March on Washington, where we all touched the state of grace and there was more equality. When we think about the election of Barack Obama. So we've seen it. We, we've seen it. We've tasted it. It's not a dream. <laughs> it's tangible, but but it's always being um, perfected. So even right now in the context of setbacks, I think what the racial summit tries to do is really bring us all together to the best of what America can be. And again, I think about this way because of the people I study, uh, Ella Baker and, and, and Fannie Lou Hamer and, and Martin Luther King Jr., Frederick Douglass, they believed in democracy. So that's why I don't think those of us who come after and are standing on their shoulders can do any less. They critique democracy, but they believe that there was a place and they believe that we were all part of this country, um, whether we're indigenous, whether we're, we're, we're white, whether we're Jewish, whether we're Gentiles, Catholics, um, atheists, that we were all part of this country. And I think that this is what the racial summit calls us to think about. And again, Dr. King, the beloved community is more relevant now, um, over 50 years after Dr. King's death, April 4th, 1968. And th- that is still 
an inflection point for American history. You know, had King lived, when we think about the politics of racial justice, things would be much different in the United States. And and this idea of a beloved community is more important now um, than ever. And I think the racial summit is really an important opportunity for students, faculty, staff at UT, but really people who are part of the Austin community and the wider state of Texas, any visitors coming to really come to that racial summit. It's really an extraordinary opportunity to meet these innovators who are from all kinds of different backgrounds, but who agree that racial justice is at the core of who we are historically, contemporaneously, and in the future. So this is a really important opportunity for people to meet um, many different iconic uh, game changers, some who we've never heard about before, some who are bold-faced names who are all coming together and talking about racial justice. Because, again, I think racial justice is um, part and parcel of citizenship. You know, I think it's part and parcel of who we are uh, as as Americans. And I think um, we do ourselves a disservice when we try to marginalize that aspect of our identity, because it's an aspect of all of us, because we were all shaped by this history of racial slavery and, and its aftermath. And we're all experiencing and Even in 2019, we are experiencing the afterlife of racial slavery, Jim Crow segregation, racial violence, racial segregation which still um, um, haunts our society, racial inequality. So I think it's very, very important. And it's a huge opportunity for all of us on a campus where we say, um, you know, what happens here changes the world, where we can tackle such a big issue as um, racial justice. Dr. Peniel Joseph is the founding director of the LBJ School Center for the Study of Race and Democracy and holds the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values at UT Austin. I'm Jennifer Staten, KUT News.